We have a few announcements to make before we start. Um, and I'm going to do these while people come in so people feel like they might have missed something if they didn't get here early. And it gives it a nice sense of liveness if we're already conducting uh, some sort of a conversation. So we have, uh, we, ha we have two and a half or, or, or three panels uh, today, not quite as long as yesterday. Um, we're starting with some opening comments, and I'll, I'll talk about that in a minute. Um, but we have, we, we have two main panels and, and lunch in the middle. Um, I'd like to, up on the screen is, uh, is the back channel, which worked wonderfully yesterday, and I appreciate everyone who put up with some of the glitches, um, but also made such good use of it. So we'll work again today to, to use that as a way um, to get some communication going across uh, the entire group during um, the discussion, and also to, to integrate questions uh, as we go. Um, I also want to just give a plug for the, for the C3 blog, where a lot of this stuff is being, is being uh, live blogged today. Um, uh, posts from yesterday are up, so reviews and an overview of uh, all of the panels uh, and the opening remarks from yesterday are there. And I encourage you all to check them out and to leave some comments and just generally get into it. Um, I, uh, we have uh, some opening comments this morning, and I'm going to introduce Sam Ford in just a minute, who's going to moderate uh, that. Uh, other than that, thank you for all coming down on what is an incredibly frosty morning. We seem to have had all of the Cambridge weather we can, because yesterday it was dreary and rainy, and this morning it was biting and cold. Uh, and that's good, and that's why we come here, I think. OK, Sam. <clears throat> Yeah, hang on. There we go. My name is Sam Ford. I'm the project manager of the uh, Convergence Culture Consortium. Uh, I know I've chatted with a few of you new faces this morning uh, as you were coming in, but uh, welcome to Futures of Entertainment too. And uh, one other thing we wanted to mention is that we do have plans to uh, put audio and video podcasts uh, of the sessions up. I know with two and a half hour sessions that they can be very dense and a lot of conversation that might be worth going back through and sifting through in the future. So we hope to have those up. Uh, shortly, uh, hopefully between the holidays at some point. Um, so if you all have colleagues that you want to be sure to share certain panels with, definitely uh, give me an email. It will be uh, announced on the Futures of Entertainment 2 site as well. And we'll probably put a notice up on the C3 blog. Uh, our conversation this morning uh, features uh, one of our consulting researchers for the consortium, uh, Jason Mattel, and also two uh, colleagues who have worked uh, with us in various capacities, uh, John Gray and Lee Harrington. Uh, without further ado, I'm going to let them uh, tell you a little bit about their backgrounds. Hi, uh, thanks for um, thanks for coming out this morning. I'm Jason Mattel. I teach media studies at Middlebury College up in Vermont. And um, when Josh and Sam and Henry asked us to do this, we the three of us tried to figure out how we we're going to attack these opening comments. Um, and we don't have the uh, snazzy presentation that Henry and Josh had yesterday to sort of set the stage. We're using very low-tech means. But we decided to try some, something. Um, in terms of dividing up what we were going to address, since there were three of us, we thought we might uh, try to all answer the question of what do media scholars have to say to this, these discussions, um, especially at this moment of, of uh, talking across industry and uh, academic here at this conference. And we decided to divide up our comments into what some people call the holy trinity of media studies, which is uh, media industries, media texts, and media audiences. And I'm going to try and, uh, using a kind of interactive PowerPoint model. Um, we have nothing really exciting to put up, except for we can go ahead and post on the back channel. Hopefully this will work. Um, our three. 
three options here, and you can vote for them as we're talking. You know, which, which of these three areas uh, you feel are most valuable. We'll try not to take it personally, you know, that each of us are attached to one, vote one or of the us other. Yeah. Yes. Um, so in thinking about this idea of the Holy Trinity, um, we can extend that metaphor uh, into these different aspects of, the, of uh, media. We can look at the industry as, as the father, the all-powerful creator that demands reverence and fear. And uh, we can also look at the text as a sort of hybrid space, the sun, uh, the hybrid of God and man, the object of love, compassion, and personal salvation. And then audiences are the elusive, ineffable, fleeting Holy Spirit, um, but ultimately drive the system. Now, in thinking about this me metaphor, I'm going first talking about the industry, and I want to push it a little further in tackling the father figure of the industry and what the industry and media academics can say to one another. Um, but I think to think of the industry as a sort of God figure, we have to embrace polytheism because the industry is not one singular uh, lord and uh, father, but rather a Greek pantheon of various gods with uh, assorted powers who feud within each other. So uh, we can see that you know, that right now the industry is at war with itself, with the, the writer's strike. Um, and I think that there's a key lesson to, that scholars need to learn in talking to people of the industry is that it is not a singular beast, but rather multi-headed and has a lot of internal differences. Um, and many people who, who do media scholars endorse a kind of knee-jerk uh, political economy top-down model, suggesting the industry is all power and ownership is all that matters. And, you know, if you understand that, you understand everything. And if you converse with almost anyone who works in the industry, you realize how untrue that is. And just for example, I've had some great conversations with Jesse Alexander this weekend, and you know, he was uh, expressing that within this you know, conglomerate behemoth of U NBC Universal, the different players involved do not necessarily talk to another, and synergy doesn't fil down, filter down to the level of creativity the way that a lot of scholars assume that it does, that everything is being driven from the boardroom. Um, and another great example of the way in which the, the industry uh, has multi-dimensions and actually uh, speaks with different uh, language in different times is, uh, does tie to the writer's strike again, in that if we think about NBC's online distribution of heroes, um, they call that now promotional, as we've talked about. Um, whereas if I go ahead and post a clip of heroes on YouTube, they call it piracy. And it has value that I'm stripping from them, whereas when they, they post it themselves, there is no value. And of course, the writers don't get paid no matter who's posting it online. But all these entities, NBC, the writers, and YouTube, are all part of the industry itself. And we have to think about that, um, the industry as a much more varied term that, uh, than people uh, conceive of it within the scholarly community. Now, scholars do um, talk about the industry, and when they do, I think that they use much more sort of atheistic theories and uh, are very skeptical of industry power. Um, and I'll just mention that for many people um, in the room, you may not be aware of this, but for many media scholars, coming to an event like this could be seen as heresy. Uh, there's an assumption that talking to the man and collaborating with the man is, is something you're not supposed to do. We're supposed to keep the industry at arm's length and view them skeptically as, uh, as something to critique rather than to work with, which um, I'm assuming most of us in the, who have chosen to come here embrace a much more open and interactive model. 
Um, one last thing I wanted to uh, say that I think is an interesting theory to bring in in terms of how we talk about the industry is one that many people in uh, media studies embrace, which is the idea of the death of the author. And this is not actually about the writer's strike, but rather that um, the notion that the creators do not fix the text and do not decide what the meaning is um, from a top-down model. When we talk about the, you know, the whole system of user-generated content, multi-platform transmedia storytelling, um, I think we can see that the way in which stories are told today also challenges that model, that there is no centralized author, that author is, authorship is decentralized and uh, often can be emergent. But I do want to suggest that there is something lost from that. Um, in, and it's something that uh, actually Jonathan and I have studied a, a little bit. Um, I think people really still embrace the author and the idea of authorial control and um, intention. And Jonathan and I did research on uh, fans of the TV show Lost and their consumption of spoilers. And one important thing that came out of that is that these fans who do things to short circuit the way in which they read the text by reading spoilers before they appear on television um, still really believe in the power of the creators and believe in the storyteller as the authority. They just want to hear that story in a slightly different way. And it runs up against uh, other modes of sort of talking back to the industry, like with, with Henry has studied with survivor spoilers, in which the author figure is very much the enemy to be taken down. And the uh, very memorable phrase, if you've read in Convergence Culture, is evil pepper, pecker mark, the, uh, the producer as villain, taking down the god figure in this way. Um, and I'm going to uh, now segue to uh, moving on to the sun. Uh, and the Holy Ghost. So, John. Um, well, I guess since I'm a, at a Jesuit university, maybe talking about Christ would be the, the proper thing to do uh, as far as the university administration is concerned. Um, however, I, I'm, I'm going to resist the, uh, the urge to play with that metaphor too much. Um, uh, and particularly for those who, the two voters who are saying it's a very elaborate metaphor. Um, I do want to talk about the, uh, the text. And in talking about the text, um, I might be using a word that I, I guess doesn't get used as often in the uh, industry. And uh, even a lot of my students struggle with it. When I talk about text, they think I mean a book automatically. Um, but I'm posing this in opposition to some of the terms that uh, I heard flying fast and furious yesterday such as you know, content or product, um, or sometimes even interface. Um, and I think the, the notion of text is, is actually a really helpful one. And I think it's one that why sort of scholars cling to it a fair bit. And it comes from Roland Barthes making the distinction quite simply between what he called the work and the text. Uh, the work being what you actually you know, produce, but the text being the point at which it actually gets meaning. Uh, you know, it's that old thing if we could move away from uh, the sort of the Christian metaphor to a Zen one. It's, you know, that old idea of if the tree falls in the forest and no one's there to hear it doesn't make a sound. And, you know, a work doesn't become a text until people actually care about it, until people invest in it, uh, until there's engagement, to use that uh, sloppy, uh, sloppy, slippery word from yesterday that no one was, was defining and I'm not going to try to either. Um, but, and uh, so I think the idea is that the, the text uh, isn't just something that the industry can produce. Uh, they can produce a work, but what happens is, is that the audience have to engage in it. The audience have to care about it. Um, 
and the audience has to give something to it themselves for it to become the text. And so if we use that idea of the text, then we have this idea of something that has to be created from both sides. Um, that there's a contribution that has to be made uh, from both sides. And I think that's also helpful because then it um, allows us to sort of perhaps distance ourselves from some of the proprietorial um, rhetoric of, of the industry, of this being our program and so forth. It might be your program, but it's never your text. Um, and also it's text that people care about. Um, I would pose that with very few exceptions, such as people who are enamored with the technology and therefore don't care what's on the technology, they just like seeing the bells and whistles. Um, people don't engage with uh, content or product. People engage with texts. That what, that's what people care about, and it's texts that live over time. It's texts that ultimately get people caring about them. Um, and so I, I think the challenge is then is how to, to work towards uh, fostering the better creation of, of texts. Um, how to, uh, the industry could perhaps better see itself as a contributor to this rather than sort of work with the idea that it's quite often run with that you know we are the grand constructors, we make it. Um, and I think that also then extends into a, another sort of issue that I think is particularly prescient for these days is the, the sort of the idea of convergence um, and what that means or the other uh, metaphor that uh, I've seen from this in the academic world is Will Brooker poses the idea of what he calls overflow. Um, and I think it's interesting to, to look at what both of them suggest, and convergence being Henry's term. Uh, what we have is the idea there of, of sort of multiple platforms coming together into one spot. And then overflow suggests the sort of direction going the other way, that what you have will suggest the idea of a text that's sort of too big to be in one TV show, that it needs to go into the website, it needs to go into the merchandise, it needs to overflow elsewhere. Um, and rather than picking one of those metaphors, I actually kind of like the idea of the two of them working together. It gives you this idea of an oscillation or the sort of beating heart. That's where the text comes from. It comes from that moving in and that moving out, sort of bringing together and, and sort of working out too. Um, and I think it, when we look at the text as being that process in and of itself, um, that's when we actually start to understand why people engage with uh, text and why they, they care about them the, the way that they do. Um, and we start to realize that the uh, the industry, again, only uh, contributes part of that. I mean, to go with some of the most successful texts in, in the, you know, the history of media, I'd pose, for instance, that Star Wars, if we really want to understand what Star Wars meant and what it means in popular culture, uh, watching the, the three movies or even the six movies only gets us so far. I think of my own experience of watching Star Wars, for instance, you know, back in 1977, being taken by my parents, watching it. We didn't have a VHS, so you know I was going to watch it a couple of other times between then and 1980, uh, when Empire Strikes Back came out. And what happened in the three years in between? Answer, I played with the toys. I did a lot of playing with the toys. Um, that's my life. <laughs> Yay, Star Wars toys. Um, but what it means is, when so first in my personal narrative, but also I'd su suggest for many people, um, even those who weren't playing with the toys, what Star Wars means isn't just what George Lucas produced in those uh, in those movies. A lot of what Star Wars means um, is in uh, is in the toys, and the toys created a lot of the popular constructions of what Star Wars was, what the world of Star Wars was, um, and it shows again that idea to you know all of the, these peripherals and the, the overflow and so forth. Um, actually start to become a vital part of the, um, the, the text. Just to give you a, another example, I think The Simpsons, 
again, if we want to understand what the, the Simpsons is, you know, we have to look away from the show itself. Um, I'd suggest that, for instance, George Bush Sr. actually constructed the Simpsons quite powerfully when he, you know, made his statement that we need more, you know, we need families more like the Waltons than the Simpsons. Uh, between that and the sort of social conservative reaction to the Bart's, um, you know, the Bart, I'm an underachiever and proud of it, man, t-shirts. Uh, I think those two things, outside of the, the, you know, the show itself, constructed uh, a large part of what The Simpsons meant. Because now, if you liked The Simpsons, you were telling George Bush to go fuck himself. And, you know, what a better message could you have? And, and then, therefore, the love of The Simpsons. And I think, you know, that, that The Simpsons as being countercultural didn't just happen in the show itself. It happened in those, those peripherals. Um, that there's so much going on there. And, and so I think one of the challenges uh, is, is not just to sort of see uh, oneself as, you know, how can you best contribute to the construction of texts, um, but then also what are, how can you contribute to that, um, to that process through the, uh, the peripherals and through the construction of all these other things that go on. You know, I've been in some discussions with, with Ivan Asquith um, working at, at Big Spaceship, right? There's your shout out. Um, about you know the, the uh, process of creating um, peripherals, and uh, I was sort of surprised to hear how uh, rarely the industry sees the peripherals as anything other than promotional materials, um, or it just sort of sees them on the side and doesn't see the creative process that goes into them as something that's contributing. But I think you know, looking forward, the the, the texts that are going to matter the most and the ones that are going to capture people, and if we're talking about the futures of entertainment, what is really going to entertain people the most are those uh, the ones that can uh, can capture that sort of oscillation that can create in multiple fronts, um, can sort of create the all-encompassing uh, text. Um, and then the last point I, I wanted to um, mention goes to the, the notion of what we were talking about, passion points, uh, yesterday, which um, partly sounds like a show that you'd see at like 2 in the morning on HBO. But um, anyway, um, <coughs> um, it's, I guess one concern I have uh, going forward, uh, particularly in a world of sort of metrics and measurement and in which metrics are improving and we can, you know, record what people like and Amazon tells me, you know, if you like this book, you might like that book and my own blog tries to suggest, you know, related posts, which I disagree with, um, that they're not related. And I, I think sometimes, you know, we've all had the experience of, of Amazon telling us something that we might like and we don't think we'd like it at all. And I think that one of the things that points to is the danger of, of the sort of use of letting metrics and measurement lead us is that I'd, I'd make my pitch for qualitative evaluation as being ultimately the most helpful. I, give you the example of, of I, I'm a huge fan of The Wire, and I think um, The Wire is probably one of the best television shows ever. Um, so, you know, here I am, I'm 32 years old, I'm, you know, white, I'm, um, I'm upper middle class, I'm exactly in the demo that most sort of advertisers want. Um, so here, you know, I've told you, I like The Wire. Um, but how do you react to that? Do you sort of say, okay, well, you know, let's make more of The Wire? But how do you know what it is I like about The Wire? Um, and I would suggest that metrics are never going to tell you what I like about The Wire. And even if you know that I like pushing daisies too, I mean, so what? You're going to create a hybrid of pushing daisies and The Wire. <laughs> now that I would want to see. Um, but I, I think, you know, even if you know all of these things I like and you know my existing passion points, I think often my, I would 
say that we're talking about the futures of entertainment, for the future of my entertainment. My passion points, I would suggest, lie in places that I don't know where they lie yet. Um, and you might actually get a better sense of where those are through the evaluative. And I think one of the, the real challenges going forward is going to be actually how to get away from metrics and measurement and how to actually start at doing qualitative research, how to try to find out what it is that makes me care about this show rather than the fact that I'm just watching it. Um, I might be watching it because I'm forced to watch it uh, rather than I want to watch it. Um, anyway, um, I, I guess to, to close by going back to Jason's metaphor, uh, if, if, the, I, if the text is, uh, is the sun, uh, then maybe we should ask, you know, what would Jesus do? Um, you know, what would the text do? And let the text lead us forward uh, rather than the work and rather than the content or the product, um, the, that, uh, the idea to create and contribute to uh, the creation of, of meaningful texts. Anyway, um, with that, let's turn to the audience, who are actually way more important than the text. Good morning, everybody. My name is Lee Harrington. I'm a professor of sociology at Miami University. Uh, listening to the discussions yesterday, I was struck by the fact that at one level, we seem to be asking the same questions we were asking 50 and 60 years ago. Who is the audience? Who are the users? And what do they want? With fragmentation, the questions do get a little more, more complicated. So we have audiences, plural, and a new urgent question of where are they? Where are the users? Where is the audience? And I really want to make three points. Um, I found it interesting yesterday that most of the discussion about what people want came from the crowd. It came from the audience. It really wasn't a discussion that the panelists and the moderator were having. So that some of the crowd questions had to do with the social effects of interconnectivity, the ease of use of new technologies, or lack thereof. Uh, the value of user, uh, one of the interesting questions that went unanswered was the value of user-generated content for other users. So someone wanted to know who wants to browse somebody else's user-generated content. How do we know that? Questions about privacy, what constitutes privacy, and the actual entertainment value of what's being developed. So I echo Jonathan that one of the key questions <coughs> is, what are we measuring? What kinds of audiencing, what kinds of usering can be measured? And through what? Through qualitative versus quantitative. There seemed to be a lot more skepticism in the audience itself about that question than among the panelists. My second point had to do with an issue that emerged late in the day, um, questions of gender and class, um, which first emerged substantively in the last session. And certainly, I think when we talk about access to technologies, we mean in part economic access, who can afford a computer, who can afford internet hookup, and the question raised yesterday, who can financially sacrifice the time to engage with new technologies at the level with, with which we were talking. A second question has to do with media literacy, which came up yesterday. Technology is changing way faster than users are, applications that nobody's using, content that users can't find. There's also a question of who wants to access these technologies, who wants to access this content. And finally, a question of who does the industry presume wants to access the content, access the technologies? And those are arguably different questions, number three and number four. And the answers to all of those questions are shaped in part by questions of race, ethnicity, class, gender, and age, and the ways that those variables intersect. So I want to focus a minute on age. You know, in the metrics panel, I was relieved to hear that even some of the market analysts are sick of all the research on millennials and sick of all the discussion on millennials. It seems to be that if you're over 34, you're basically over the abyss. You know, there's nothing, nothing on the other side. 
This year, the U.S. reached a really important demographic milestone where the first wave of baby boomers began to apply for Social Security. The aging of the population is not just a U.S. phenomenon, but it's a global phenomenon, especially in many countries in Western Europe, certain Asian countries, you've got a real stark contrast between uh, rates of people being born and rates of people dying. In the U.S. context, or sorry, in the U.S. context, we seem to talk about the political and economic power of the baby boomers in every context but the culture industries. If we don't know what audiences want in general, we really don't know what older audiences want. I understand some of the economic reasons for ignoring this demographic. I'm also involved in a small-scale research project that talks to uh, television viewers in their 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s. And these are people who yearn to be marketed to, by somebody but pharmaceutical companies. So what are the long-term economic consequences of ignoring certain segments of the population? And finally, and briefly, um, I think the discussion yesterday raised new and interesting questions about the balance of power between producers and users, the negotiation, the ongoing tension. And I, I wrote down verbatim one sentence. I think Roth said it yesterday. Um, the content is there so we can watch people skittering across it. And from an economic perspective, I get that. But from a user perspective, you know, ah, a little bit scary. So those are my comments. Well, um, we've had some interesting questions popping up already. One of the, a couple of the questions seem to be focusing on uh, qualitative research in particular. Which, uh, which I find interesting. Uh, one question says, what kind of qualitative methods can help answer these questions regarding passion points? Uh, and, and the other asking, how do we implement meaningful qualitative methods on a mass scale? Since I know each of you are interested in perhaps more so quali qualitative than quantitative, but also the hybrid of the two, um, just wanted to get your, your feedback on that. Well, I'll give an immediate response, and I think one of the biggest challenges has to do with the pace of market research versus the pace of academic research and how to make those sort of align more closely or, or something, something along those lines. I mean, I think certainly qualitative research, ethnographic research, surveys, in-depth interviews, et cetera, that there's a lot that qualitative methods could tell us about the real substance of what people are liking and not liking in text, what people are finding meaningful. But that's a slower method of research than quantitative measures than market research. And, that, I think, that's one of the key challenges. Jonathan? I mean, I'd, I'd also say that I think the industry could actually benefit from starting to read some more um, academic sort of media studies. I mean, there's some really good qualitative uh, research that's being conducted. Um, it sort of speaks to one of the real concerns I have is that it seems that, I mean, there's such hostility between academia and the industry. And I mean, it goes both ways. But I mean, one of the reasons where it comes from, it, you know, is that we're not seen as contributing to the same project at all. Um, you know, people, when I wrote a book on, on parody in The Simpsons, uh, one of the most frequent questions people ask very eagerly is, oh, did you get to meet Matt Groening? Um, and the truth is I didn't contact any of the producers because I thought it would result in a cease and desist letter from Fox. Um, and I mean, maybe I'm, I'm thinking of Fox as more evil than they are, um, if that's possible. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, I think it speaks, to, you know, it, and many uh, uh, researchers have had this experience of trying to, you know, work on a book and, you know, uh, trying to seek permissions to, to get, uh, you know, publish a picture or so forth and being told, no, you can't do that. And being sort of warned, uh, warded away from research by the, the legal teams. And I think it speaks to that sort of hostility. And I think if 
I mean, there's some really good qualitative audience research being done about why people engage with the texts that they do and how they engage with them. And, and so I think a lot of it's already there. It's just um, not being looked at. And the other thing, and I'm not sh I can't speak to within the industry how such uh, work is known, read, ignored, or understood, but it does seem that, I mean, one of the points of qualitative research is that it's not generalizable in the same way that quantitative research is. And it's, not, it's just not designed to be a, a study that says, we've studied this small group of people, and thus this is representative of the whole. Now, whether Nielsen, which studies a small group of people, which I believe is not representative of the whole, is any better is a, is a larger question. But I think that you know, the questions that academic researchers who study reception and audiences ask are ultimately don't always uh, converge with the questions that audiences want to hear. And then on our end, we're very bad about making those links, about trying to say, this is what we've learned about this interesting academic question. And this is how it might apply to what you do. And I think that most of us who are um, willing to talk to the industry and willing to come to a, a, a meeting ground like this would love to see mutual influence and, and collaboration. We don't view that sort of in, knee-jerk hostility, but um, the, way, the sort of modes of presentation and modes of engagement are, are hard to conceptualize given the reward structure within academia versus the, the assumptions of the industry and timing of the industry. I mean, I think one of the things that academia has to offer in answering that question, I mean, the spirit of good qualitative audience research is that you have to be willing to be surprised. Um, if you go in just wanting an answer to this question, um, you're not doing good qualitative audience research. Like I think of some of the, the best stuff that's come out of the qualitative audience research I've done has t completely taken me out of left field and has often posed new research questions than the one I, ones I asked. Now, it seems that in the industry, th there's a problem with that sort of model because you, know, you don't want to be funding research that's just sort of wandering around all over. But you know, we're, we're academics. We like to wander around all over. So you know, we can do it and we get re when we do get rewarded for it. Um, and, and so, the, you know, in very maybe, small amounts. Yeah, in very small amounts. Um, so, I mean, maybe uh, maybe seeing where we we've come up with it might be a sort of a helpful way forward. So, certainly, advocacy research is not something that never happens in academia. But often, you know, uh, you make a good point. One question that was posed uh, here as well was that some of the people yesterday were saying that even marketing research isn't happening fast enough. And I thought a space that's interesting to talk about that is. Uh, online discussion groups, the blogosphere, etc. We had Jim Nail from Symphony here yesterday whose company uh, measures buzz and trying to find ways to measure buzz through through analytics, those type of systems. But often as I've talked to people in the industry, you know, if I say, if I say qualitative audience research, they say, oh, focus groups. And, you know, for me, focus groups, you know, there are many things about focus groups that are just as problematic as the things I see about the quantitative survey research that you see floating around. And for me, online discussion groups, uh, the blogosphere, et cetera, are a lot of good correctives um, for the problems that you see crop up there. Not to say that there aren't just as you know, many problems posed there, that, that, that online discussion boards aren't the be all and end all. And as anybody who works in the industry knows, if you write, your, you know, if, if you write a show or develop a product just for, that, just for that audience and only taking them into account, that that's not what we're advocating at all. But I just wanted to get each of your takes since I know uh, for instance, Lee, you've written a book about, about fandom and, and how that fandom you know, migrates onto the online has been of interest to you, and each of you all have it at one point or another. For the industry, how can, how can, that, how can that be of value, that but lead user component of discussion groups? 
Well, I think it is a value, but you always have to take into account that you know the people who that, that that's a skewed sample itself. Who's online? Who's talking online? And so, if you take that as the audience, you know, as representative of the audience as a whole, you're making a mistake right from the get-go. So, I study the daytime industry, soap operas, and focus groups were huge in the mid-90s, where the whole direction of the entire genre, all of the shows, seemed to be directed for a you know brief and sad era of time by by focus groups. You know, twelve point in, twelve people in a room waxing poetic about what they wanted to see on As the World Turns. And the genre you know, reeled for several years in the 90s with the, dom the dominance of focus groups. So all of these things have their place. You know, the online blogosphere has its place. Focus groups, ha focus groups have their place. You know, quantitative metrics have their place. But so does the sort of slow, qualitative, again, ethnographic, in-depth interview piece. And no one, there's no one methodological approach that solves all the questions. It's sort of what question are you asking and then what would be the appropriate methodology to answer that question. And the deep questions of engagement, meaning, passion, it's very hard to see how a quantitative metric could accurately measure that. And I, I would say just on top of that, um, one of the things that I think good qualitative research does is, is always remember that media consumption is done contextually and usually within a community. And that community can be your family, it can be an online community, it can be, you know, we're talking about soap operas, often, you know, multi-generational. You know, Sam, Sam's work on this uh, points to how this mode of consumption is tied to a community, and that's what a, some good qualitative research does, is try to say, what is this interpretive community? What are the ideas that they bring to it? And how do they consume communally? And focus groups seem to be the exact opposite of that. Let's create a totally artificial community, put them in a room, and have them have a conversation about that. And that's not the way in which people consume. You don't, I mean, yes, you go see a movie with a random, random sample of people, but then you don't sit in a room and talk about it with that group of people. You fracture off into your own communities. So that's one difference I would see that's important. Yeah, I mean, I guess what I'd make the plea for, in, in addition to focus groups, we need lack of focus groups. <laughs> and that's really Soft what... Soft focus groups. Yeah, I mean, that's really what the online sphere sometimes allows us, is the, the ability to see the way in which when you actually let the conversation follow the direction it wants to follow, uh, where some of the strings that you didn't expect come in and, and some of the sort of issues that you didn't expect um, uh, come into it. If I could just add one other thing, I see the point up there about qualitative versus quantitative research, and I do agree that it's not it's not very helpful to simply pose those, you know, or pitch those as opposed to one another. I really think it's about what question are you asking, and then what would be the appropriate way to go about addressing that question. And sometimes quantitative is per perfectly appropriate, and sometimes qualitative is perfectly appropriate, and often mixed method approach is the most appropriate. So it always starts with what question are you trying to answer. Yeah, one other thing that I was thinking uh, that falls into some of our, all of our interests to some degree is, and, and this metaphor as well, is the fact that, that, that products are often created for a certain market, a certain target demographic, yet the audience that's there for it might not be the demographic that, it's, that it was produced for. When it becomes a text, often you find the people who've activated it aren't the people who you assumed would be there to activate mm. it. Uh, so we're very interested in, at C3 in surplus audiences and a lot of the people working around C3. Um, and I, I just, just wondered your take on that, this, you know, especially, your, for instance, you were mentioning your work on older viewers, who, for, for instance, for soap operas, aren't the targeted audience. Yet, you know, I've argued in my, in my thesis work that those viewers 
uh, are instrumental to pulling in the younger viewers because if it, if it is a transgenerational viewing model, how are, the, how are they there to, when, when, when kids were growing up to, to have a soap opera on in the house or to encourage that, that mode of consumption? Because it's not the type of genre that's easy to get adults involved with who didn't watch it or have some history with these characters. But I think it's also true of any genre of show that, that Veronica Mars is a good show that I know we've talked about several times that had an audience that wasn't necessarily the audience that they wanted. And there was a, you could see a branding struggle throughout the history of that show that they weren't reaching the airy target demographic that they were doing marketing wraps for. And just to tie back to, you know, Jonathan mentioned The Wire, and that I think is a great uh, example of a surplus audience. The two most dedicated fans of The Wire, fan groups of The Wire, are, you know, the quality audience, upper middle class, white, educated, you know, the sort of HBO subscriber, you know, this is the sort of dream market. And urban drug dealers um, love the show, <laughs> and it circulates in bootleg copies amongst you know drug dealing communities, and it is not only um, consumed passionately, it's also used as a model for certain activities. And there, there's been cases of uh, the um, you know a drug gang get, be, being busted and telling the cops, "Well, we were trying to follow what we learned in the wire," and you know. David Simon, the creator of the show, has you know, has implicitly endorsed this this piracy because he, he recognizes you know most a lot of these people live in places where they don't have electricity, nevertheless cable television and premium cable. So he's happy to see that this text is being consumed because he thinks it does speak to them in, and you know a lot of it comes out of his experience in those communities. Um, but it is a you know a totally surplus audience that HBO does not monetize in any particular way. I mean, it might speak to one of the challenges being, is, you know, how do you create multiple layered audiences? You know, I mean, like, I go back to The Simpsons as the sort of classic example of something that's done really well with a sort of broad audience, and yet, it, you know, one of the reasons why advertisers love it and why it's continued to do so well is because of the sort of the, 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 um, the high-end audience that it, that it brings in. I think TV Land is another interesting example of... Uh, a brand that has decided to target baby boomers and the 50-plus population by appealing appealing to them, and that's an interesting market because it, you know the idea that 18 to 49 is the is the uh, is the measure of, of success is it has always been interesting to me, especially um, you know as you move toward and again problematic term, but we were having all this discussion yesterday about engagement. Um, if you move to engagement is in any way as the model, how does that change um, the reliance on markers like uh, gender? Or age of the viewer. Does the mode of consumption trump these those sort of those sort of indicators of who the audience is? And are there ways to target audiences that, that fall, don't fall in those two categories? You know, I, I, I guess what's interesting to me is the is the gender you are, the age you are, what brings a group of people together more so than these other factors when it comes to it from an advertising standpoint. Just are you saying does it bring together in the mind of the the advertisers or bring together in the mind of the viewers? Well, I, I think that that's. I wonder if there's a disconnect there. Is oh, that definitely. what we're proposing, and what do we what do we feel could be done to correct that? Because of course, you know, as some as somebody said yesterday in the comments, we, you know, we're very good at posing problems. What can we, you know, what do we do about solutions, and what what can we suggest moving forward? Because uh, I think that's actually being aware of the problem is a major uh, accomplishment in itself. But then, you know, what what can we do to correct this disconnect if it does indeed exist? I mean, I I made the suggestion. I mean, I. I really, when I teach about television, I always try to differentiate between an audience and a viewer. 
and audiences are industry-constructed categories, and viewers are actual people who are watching. And the ways in which those things converge or diverge, you know, really change based on the context and experience. And um, you know, I think that Nielsen ratings and other metrics are really designed to create these audience categories, but they are measures that have built in, you know, the, the measure itself helps create what it measures. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't do this type of work, but I would love to see, I mentioned in the metrics panel yesterday, a more bottom-up emergent mo mode of measurement to marshal some of the online energy that, that circulates around shows into an open and acknowledged way to, to see, okay, here are some numbers that might matter to the industry um, that are not proprietary and closed, but that actual people can engage with and then talk back to and open up the, the black boxes. Um, I think that would help, but whether that can happen, I mean, Stacy brought up all those points, all the reasons why it won't happen, at least economically, as a, as a new currency within the media, but perhaps it could filter up and, and change the currency or at least provide an alternative currency. Well, partly I think that, you know, industry, you know, industry members and academics often agree wholeheartedly on what the problems are. So in a context like soap operas, again, you have a long history of intergenerational viewership. You have a long history of intergenerational acculturation into the programming, uh, an awareness of the value of older viewers, a, a symbolic value of the older viewers. But, you know, in talking with industry members, they, they, they are as likely to say as academics, this is a problem that they're not valued in a sense economically. And again, as a sociologist, I'm partly interested in something like the power of a major demographic transition on who we look at as having buying power and why. I mean, the baby boomers are there. They're, you know, so something is happening, happening at the sociological level. Again, we're not yet seeing the, the import of that in terms of the culture industries in quite the same way as we are other sectors of the economy. I mean, uh, uh in some senses, you know, okay, so we started with the idea of the Holy Trinity, but I mean, I really think that, like, that one of the things that we need to get away from is the ideas that Nielsen is God, you know? That, um, I mean, my, my wife is a demographer, and whenever I, we've talked about the, the sample size and so forth, she's appalled. Um, this is not really good science, as much as they convince themselves that it's really good science. Um, and it's not reflective of a large amount of the audience. And also it, it tricks us into these sort of, you know, asking questions that perhaps aren't as helpful as asking other questions. I mean, I see one of the points here is, um, but even marketing research is not fast enough. That's what they were saying yesterday. Well, I mean, okay, if you really want to know like exactly how many people watched that ad, then, you know, first, I mean, Nielsen's is using to tell, tell you a small portion of, of what might, who may have or may not have. Um, but I, I pose that for advertisers, again, it comes back to that issue of engage with the text. You know, that like the people who really care about the text are the ones who are going to follow it and who, who are the ones who are going to be more engaged with it. And who are the, the ones that, you know, I would pose that for advertisers, those, the, you're, you've got your best chance of, of reaching them in a sort of receptive mode. I mean, I still know who sponsored. Um, Buffy the Vampire Slayer when I watched it in England um, because I watched that show so much. And I, I can't tell you who advertises on many of the shows that I don't give a damn about that I watched two nights ago. Um, so, you know, when we're talking about the impressions and so forth and, and where the advertisers sort of, you know, can, uh, 
make the, the, the most impact, a lot of it's not going to come through knowing exactly what happened yesterday evening. It's, it's going to come through a, a sort of a longer uh, uh, approach. And I realize that's sort of pie-in-the-sky thinking. And I have the luxury of thinking that way because I'm not running a business and I'm not going to get fired, you know, and... Uh, the end of this quarter if I, if I do poorly. But at the same time, there is some of that, you know, sort of the, the, some of the times that following the Nielsen's is the wrong way to go. As I chatted with a lot of people here yesterday, one of the things that everybody was talking about is sort of the unique blend of academia and industry that came to this conference. And of course, just putting this up for registration and not necessarily doing a lot of promotion for the conference, it's really interesting to see who decided to come, who wanted to register this, who found Futures of Entertainment 2 to be in some way valuable. And the fact that from, from the look of registration, it was about a half industry and half audience mix is fascinating. Yeah, academic <laughs> and, and industry mix. It really fa fascinates me. Um, so I'm, you know, I'm curious uh, what you think the challenges are. You know, how can we foster conversations that don't just happen once a year at an event like this? Um, and and, and what, the, what is the value of that? You mentioned a little bit just reading. Um, the work and trying to, sh to share work. You know, one of the one of the problems is, of course, a lot of industry side research is proprietary, and it's hard to share work. Uh, I know a lot of academics who've been interested in sharing work. You know, the consortium is built around the idea of, of sharing work in a space and in a type of conversation that can work for industry standards. Um, what what are your opinions on this and the pro the projects that you've worked on? I mean, I think that I, I work more on um, looking at things like narrative and genre. So I'm. The people I'm most interested in talking to tend to be the, creator, the creative personnel. And um, if you can get aligned to them, they usually are incredibly receptive. And that's great. Um, I know that there are oftentimes those lines run through legal departments, which then cut those lines. So I think that it, you know, the ability for creative personnel to you know, connect in a place like C3 and say, you know, we're interested in what you have to say and we're open to talking to you and having those lines of communications um, is crucial because, you know, I hope that, I mean, I think that one thing that, you know, media scholars do have to offer is, you know, a sense of history, a sense of context, and a, hopefully, um, you know, a, a broader base of, of information and the time to sort of reflect on uh, a, a larger context because they're not worried about producing the next script or getting fired the next quarter, et cetera. Um, and so I hope that those avenues continue to, to move forward. But like I said, on the academic side, there's a real skepticism that, you know, we're, by coming to a place like this, that we're all just selling out to the man. And, and I hope that, you know, new, newer generations of scholars will have a much more open and uh, pluralistic mindset about that. I just wanted to, to jump in and say, you know, I've mentioned this to several of you before, I've seen things, you know, looking around the blogosphere, trying to see buzz around our consortium. Uh, have seen some academic blogs call us, every, you know, call us some, some pretty nasty things yep. or say, uh, you know, this is the exact opposite of what media studies research should be doing, which is, which is interesting to me. And I, you know, I try to take Jim Nail's approach of criticism as a positive metric. Um, and you know, that's reassuring. Um, but, but, you know, it's, I've also, on the other side, talked to some, a lot of people from industry, both people who were here and people who weren't able to be here who said, you know, they had a hard time justifying getting, uh, getting the funding to come to this conference to travel because the question was, well, what's the value in engaging with academics? They're, you know, the research they do is of very little interest to us. There's no immediate business application, et cetera. And I just think it's interesting that we actually have that disconnect on both sides. 
Well, I think, you know, in part for me, it, it depends on which aspect of the industry you're talking about. So, again, part of my work is in the soap opera industry, and I've generally found people much more, you know, industry members welcoming an academic perspective, welcoming sort of a collaborative or, or you know, shared understanding of what's happening in the genre. I also study the global distribution industry, global TV distribution industry, and there it's very, very hard, I've found, to, to find people willing to sort of collaborate, to have the time to, I mean, collaborate in terms of idea sharing, to have the time to do that. So for me, it sort of depends on, again, sort of what aspect you're talking about. I think one of the challenges we have as academics is to produce research that's readable <laughs> to people who aren't you know, sitting next door to you in the next office and uh, to be able to communicate what it is that we're doing and finding in you know, non-jargony ways. I think language is uh, uh, an important part of this. We talked some yesterday and we had some comments yesterday about also this is a major industry problem, of course. You know, and the history of academia is riddled with each, each discipline having their own terminology for something that even other disciplines study, but you couldn't even have a conversation. A sociologist and an anthropologist and cultural studies might all be talking about the same thing, but it's like the Tower of Babel. But of course, yeah. the same thing happens in industry where, you know, I hear a lot of uh, acronyms being thrown around. And of course, you know, different people in the audience have said to me, like, I had no clue. You know, we need to use this board for somebody to post definitions of all these acronyms everybody's using because, of course, you know, the mobile media panel, for instance, maybe everybody on the panel understands it and the moderator understands what they're talking about, perhaps, but a good portion of the audience doesn't, et cetera. You know, I think that's something, something that, of course, is very academic, very qualitative to say, but language matters tremendously. Well, and actually, I'm, I'm looking at the back channel right here, and, and someone just posted that right, right before you said that, is that, you know, um, no matter what mode of measuring, what we call it and the language that we use to describe it matters. And I think the, and then the language that we use to communicate it. And I want to tie one more thing that someone else, another thing on thing about uh, no one thinks Nielsen is God. Um, I don't know whether that's true in the industry or not, but from the person who's outside the industry keeping an eye on television, Nielsen is perceived as God. So if Nielsen's not perceived as God within the industry itself, the black box of the industry projects that Nielsen is God. So the question of what is, why did the show get canceled? Because the ratings weren't high enough. And why weren't the ratings weren't high enough? Because no one was watching it. That's the logic there. Now, the fact that the ratings weren't high enough and no one was watching it, that there's a disconnect there that we know about. But if there is also a disconnect between the ratings weren't high enough and that's why it got canceled, that's not seeping out of the black box. So those of you who are in the industry, please let it seep. Explain why these things happen outside of Nielsen. Um, you know, because I think that that could really change attitudes and change viewer attitudes and certainly academic attitudes. Yeah, I mean, the other thing I'd, I'd say in response to that, you know, that no one says that Nielsen is God. Maybe it's God in the same way that, like, almost everyone in England belongs to the Church of England, and yet if you walk into a yeah. church on Easter, no one's there. Yeah. Um, and Or maybe it's the way in which, you know, like, media depictions, you know, like, we all know that South Asians aren't like a poo, but, you know, in the absence of sort of what, there's Mohinder and Heroes, and there's, like, uh, you know, Neela and ER, and there are very few other South Asians on TV. So in the absence of other depictions, we sort of, own, all we can do is fall back on what's there. And I think that's where Nielsen works, is in the absence of some sort of smart competitive system or other way of looking at it, a lot of us fall back on it as just being the sort of, you know, the de facto god. And just one more back channel comment. Someone just wrote, Nielsen isn't god, it's a trading currency, which is true. But you could say the same thing about you know money. 
Money is, <laughs> isn't God. It's a trading currency, but we tr our society treats money as God. So. One, one thing I wanted to return to at, as we start to wrap up the opening comments uh, is this idea we had before of, of what now. If we think of uh, Futures of Entertainment 2 as creating a dialogue between academia and industry, uh, what, can we, what can we do to keep that dialogue going rather than all coming back to uh, a cold yesterday and a little bit warmer today, Bartos, next year, to have a, you know, a conversation that builds on, you know, we're, we're going to be in a completely different place next year. And, and, and how, can we, how can we sort of facilitate this arrangement, or how, how do you see this moving forward so that it isn't just sort of a once-a-year gathering? The one thing I'm very um, optimistic about in, on the academic side is um, new, mo new models of pu publishing and publicizing research, um, whether it's blogging or online um, journals that are faster and written for a broader audience. I hope on the industry side that people start reading these. People start reading Henry's blog, the C3 blog. Um, you know, both Johns and I have blogs. A, 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 a digital publishing venue like flowtv.org, I don't know how many people in the TV industry look at something like that. But that's a place where television scholars are writing not just to themselves, not in these journals that, you know, the only people that read them, and we don't even read them ourselves, <laughs> but, you know, they're, they're there. those things we publish in order to get tenure. Flow or blogging we publish because we have something to say and want to be heard, and we want to be read, and we want people to comment. And I think that, so I'm optimistic that as more and more scholars start doing that, hopefully more and more people in the industry start at least consuming, if not participating in those spaces. And, and I mean, it goes the other way too. You know, I had a couple of colleagues I was talking to the other day and I had to tell them that there was a writer's strike going on and what this meant. And <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I mean, like, it, uh, like this, it, 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 the academics need to look in the mirror too. A lot of the times, you know, we, we don't know what's going on because, you know, like some people feel that, you know, the way that TV was in 1970 is, is enough to write the article in, you know, 2007, and it, it's not. So, you know, it, it's the, it's, you know, we all got to keep up to date with what the other side's doing and what's happening. Well, I agree with both of them. All right. Well, we appreciate you all coming out early this morning, and uh, we'll sh take a short break and then uh, be prepared for our first panel.